On the question of prayer, which is at the heart of Christian living, Jesus has already, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's already warned of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the babbling repetition of pagans, and he's given us a model, a kind of a structural model for prayer in the Lord's Prayer. And he has done so in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, in the context of this demanding summons to discipleship. Right? A summons so demanding that at times it seems inhuman. So in our text this morning from Matthew 7, it's as if the Lord is saying to us, look, I know that I've set an exacting, that yea, an impossible standard before you. Right? Indeed, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I know that you don't have the resources right, or the natural ability to be whom I've summoned you to be. Yet, Jesus says, I don't want to discourage you. But the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is not to dishearten us. So here, in this little chunk of text, I desire to remove your hesitancy to live this life, your unbelief, your doubt, your discouragement. Here the Lord says, I want to stimulate you with these expansive, these really broad and large and astounding promises to eagerly ask and to seek the things that you lack. Right? Namely, Right? The virtues, the fruit of the Spirit, to which my sermon is calling you. Now, it's crucial then, I think, for us to see that we must set this text, the gospel lesson which was read, we must set this text in this context. The context of the sermon as a whole, and especially in light of the Lord's Prayer in particular. Because if we don't do this, if you just take the gospel lesson and you tear it out as a sort of little standalone piece of prayer advice, we end up with some sort of bizarre name it and claim it theology, something like that, where we have to keep coming up with reasons why our prayers are not answered. Maybe we didn't have enough faith. Maybe we didn't pray hard enough. Maybe we have a secret sin. Maybe the prayer was answered and the answer is really no. And on and on and on. And even if you don't go down that path, one will still look at this text here and its seemingly ridiculous guarantees as something that's just simply impossible to square with our actual experience of praying. Those seem to be the options, right, if you take the text I just read. So, it's seeking the kingdom first. It's praying by the priorities of the Lord's Prayer. It's passionately seeking the life of the Beatitudes. These realities have to frame our approach to this passage. So with that frame, I want to make two points. They're there in, on the outline in the bulletin. Good gifts, 
and the golden rule. So first, the good gifts. Matthew 7, verse 7. Jesus says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Continuous, present tense verbs. Keep asking, and you'll receive. Keep seeking, and you'll find. Keep knocking, and it will be opened. And notice, we can't really water this down. It's hard to evade the force, right? Jesus is absolute about the results, as verse 8 indicates. Everyone, not an elite group of pious people, everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Asking and seeking and knocking, here are virtual synonyms. And what we are to be asking and seeking and knocking for is the kingdom of God and his glory. Right? That's the context of the Sermon on the Mount that can't drop out of sight. Right? We're seeking to be people who live out the Beatitudes. People who embody the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. People who seek to be perfect as their Father in heaven is perfect. And the way we seek and ask and knock is the way of the Lord's Prayer. And so you can be sure that the one who persistently does that will get what they ask for. That's essentially what Jesus is teaching here. This is why this is put in absolute terms to us. God will always vindicate his glory. He will hallow his name in the earth. He will bring forth his indestructible kingdom. He will see to it that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. He will supply your needs. You can't always get what you want, but God will supply your daily bread. He will always answer prayers for forgiveness and for deliverance from evil. He will have a holy people, poor in spirit, meek, merciful, peacemakers, pure in heart, slandered and persecuted, who shall see his face and have his name upon them. Now, sometimes the answers here will come later, fully at least, in the eschaton, at the end. But those are the things, and they are the only things that these promises are attached to. That's why it's just so critical, I, I, I have to repeat this, to take this little piece of text and remember it's in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount after the Lord's Prayer. If you are asking, and if you are seeking, and if you are knocking about the content of the Lord's Prayer, about the virtues of the Beatitudes, you will not be disappointed. But we're often disappointed because we're seeking some other thing. And so we desperately need prayer that's driven by the priorities of the Lord's Prayer. I mean, we're going to riff off the Lord's Prayer, of course, But the fundamental structure of your prayer life is hallowing God's name and the coming of his kingdom and the doing of his will and then our needs and our salvation. This is how Paul teaches us to pray. If you look at the prayer sheet, which is out in the narthex, we have a monthly prayer sheet. I encourage you to pick one up if you've fallen out of the habit of doing that. 
It's structured around Paul's prayers in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. Right? Those are God-centered, theocentric prayers where he's praying for the fullness of God to fill up the life of the church and then the church to live out of that. You read those apostolic prayers in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 and you recognize that we are not eager enough to ask for the right things. And it's to excite that eagerness in us that Jesus makes these sweeping promises. In addition, Jesus commands, and notice, ask, seek, and knock, they are commands. In addition, he commands persistence. So you're being called in this text to a kind of confident expectant boldness in continually praying for the kingdom of God. Jesus wants to assure you that when you do that, you shall find, you shall receive an answer. Calvin said, nothing is better adapted to excite us to prayer than the full conviction that we shall be heard. And Jesus is giving you that here. He is saying, I want to give you full conviction that your prayers are being heard. If they're the right kinds of prayers. I've mentioned it before, but I think it's one of the greatest treatises on prayer ever written. And it's not that long. But it's in Calvin's book three of his institutes. I'd commend it to you very highly. But he speaks of all the treasures of God. Being laid up, he says, in Jesus Christ, clothed with his gospel. So all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, everything we desire for human happiness and blessedness, is laid up for us in Jesus Christ, he says, but it remains for us, he uses this language, to dig out those treasures by arduous, persistent prayer. So that the treasures don't always just lay outside of us. Right? There's no appropriating of your riches in Jesus Christ apart from this sacred labor. Words, Calvin says, fail to express how important prayer is. If you put it in the context of the Beatitudes, you begin to think, well, prayer is the language of the poor in spirit. It's prayer is the logic of beggars. Prayer is a declaration of deep dependence. This is why it was so hard for us. It's this, it's this deep reminder that we are creatures, that we don't sustain our own lives. Prayer is a reminder of our impotence and our weakness and that our strength comes from elsewhere. That it's in your weakness and your inability that God manifests his strength and his power. Prayer is a reminder that we seek fullness elsewhere. So we want to see God do great things. If you want to see God do great things through Westminster Church, then pray more. It's not that complicated. But pray prayers shaped by the Lord's Prayer. Prayers that are aspiring to the blessed life of the Beatitudes. We don't yearn and cry out for this enough. And this brings us to this short little parable Jesus tells to kind of illustrate this point to encourage us further. 
Verse 9, he says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? The, the examples are intentionally absurd. Right? Of course, the point is, no decent human parent would respond this way. If you, Jesus says, who are evil, and by that he means we're fallen, we're, we're selfish, we're mere shadows, mere shadows of God's gracious fatherhood. Right? Even the best parents are shadows of God's goodness. He says, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So this is an important qualifier. Right? Jesus tells this little parable, but notice it qualifies the note of being persistent. Persistence is not called for from us because God is grudging or ungenerous or he's some sort of a father who needs to be prevailed upon or something like that. The father gave the son. That father is beneficently inclined to you. He's fully turned his face toward us. And with the son, he wants to freely give you all good things. What will he not grant us, Augustine says, having already granted the gift of making us sons? And nobody prayed for that. Right? The greatest gift has already been given apart from your prayers. All the rest is just fleshing that out. So it's God's goodness, right? It's not some sort of guilt or anxiety on our part or some sort of reluctance on his part. It's his goodness and his generosity which nurtures our persistence. Right? That's the force of the how much more. If human parents in their brokenness do good things for their children, how much more? Your father, who's the source of every good and perfect gift, who knows no change or variation. Prayer changes us. It does not change God. It certainly doesn't change God's disposition toward us. Like in Genesis, Jacob is said to prevail upon God. But it's Jacob who walks away wounded. So persistence, then, is not nagging. You know, there is a kind of persistence that this, that's almost a form of unbelief. What Jesus means is occasionally, seasonably, regularly, across long periods of time, reminding God of what he has promised to do and to make us be. Now, sometimes it's hard to know where the exact line is between persistence and something like unbelieving nagging or anxiety-ridden prayer. But the important thing to see here is that God doesn't have some sort of a counter waiting for you to cross a threshold. Like, well, you've only asked me 11 times and I'm, gonna te- I'm looking for 17 petitions before I give you this request. When you hit 17, then I'll know you're serious. What kind of a father would that be? He is inclined to give us all the good things outlined in the Lord's Prayer, all the virtues of the Beatitudes, all the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit. And these things are here in the text called good gifts. 
Now, here I want you to notice something. You may think you know this passage, and it's pretty familiar. The parallel to this passage in Luke's Gospel shines a radiant light on what is meant by good gifts here. When Jesus tells us in Luke's Gospel, you know, how much more will your Heavenly Father give you good things? Do you know how he concludes it there? He says, how much more will your Heavenly Father give, not good gifts, but the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, that, that sheds new light on the passage. It turns out that all the good things that we can ask of God can be reduced to this, the gift of the Spirit. That should change the way we look at prayer, and especially the notion of persistently asking and seeking and knocking for things. Put it this way, are we persistently asking and seeking and knocking to be flooded with the Spirit of God? To have the floodgates of heaven open so that the mercy of God might descend through the Spirit and flood our lives? No, we've got a list of stuff and we're praying for this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing and this thing. We want God to do this thing and that thing and that. But but praying for God himself? All prayer is a seeking of God himself. All the good gifts are, in Luke's parallel text, nothing other than God the Spirit. And to have prayer shaped by something else is essentially to engage in idolatry while you are praying. It's Christianized idolatry, to be sure. The chief gift of prayer is the gift of God, the Spirit. Because the Spirit is, and we're going to sing this in the closing hymn, Lord willing, today in a a bit. And that hymn speaks to the Spirit and calls the Spirit that best of all donations, gifts, that God can give or we implore. The best gift that God can give is God. The best gift that you can implore, plead for, is God himself. The rest of the stuff is a footnote tossed in with God. So that prayer then is always and ultimately about what the Christian life is about. Communion with the triune God in the Spirit. That's why Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 is that the church would be filled up to all the fullness of God. And with himself, with himself, with himself, God freely gives all things. So that's the good gifts. Second, then, is the golden rule. So in verse 12... Apparently, in response to our Father's generosity, Jesus starts with another therefore. Sometimes it's translated so. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So the so, the therefore, connects this little commandment, the golden rule, to the short passage on prayer that we just went through. It's an interesting connection, right? The the logic seems to be like this. Out of gratitude for your Father's goodness, out of the grace of the Holy Spirit received in response to your kingdom petitions, 
right, out of the inner security and freedom that we have in the hands of that father, do to others what you would have them do to you. Live out the golden rule. Calling this little text the golden rule is not something the Bible does, right? It, it actually can be traced back to the third century to a Roman emperor named Severus, who was not a Christian. But he was so impressed with this little command that he had it engraved in gold and put on his chamber wall. Now, it's, it's a deceptively simple little thing. It's not a unique rule, by the way. That you can find this kind of stuff in the ancient world. You can find this, the rule in Confucius, It's in the Stoics, it's in Homer, it's in some of the rabbis. But usually, when you look for it there, it's in negative form. It sounds like this. What you don't want done to you, don't do to others. It's kind of a do-no-harm principle. And while that's certainly true, certainly true, it's even implied by Jesus' words. But putting it in the positive form, is much more demanding. Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. I mean, think about it if it was just the negative form. Don't do to others stuff you don't want done to you. Again, that's fine. It just lowers the bar. You can think of the goats in Matthew 25. They didn't visit the imprisoned. They didn't feed the hungry. Right? They would be acquitted under the negative form of the rule because they didn't do anything bad to anybody but they'd be indicted under the positive form of the rule because they failed to positively love their neighbors. The rule summarizes, Jesus says, the law and the prophets, the whole history of God's redemptive dealings with his people. And this means the rule can't be arbitrary or subjective, right? It it summarizes the law and the prophets. In other words, you can't say, well, I'm okay if people curse at me. So therefore, I can curse it then. Right? That would be a perverse use of the rule. Right? The rule is governed by the law and the prophets and the kingdom that they announce. And it's exquisitely simple. It summarizes all the commands, hundreds of them, pertaining to neighbors in the Old Covenant into one always applicable, simple rule. This then, this golden rule, This is the summary of the Beatitudes. This is the summary of the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a summary of the righteousness of the kingdom. It's a summary of our attitude toward our enemies and toward those who hate us. This is the rule of the kingdom of God. And yet the rule, given our propensity to self-love and to And to judgment, the rule is exquisitely difficult. The rule calls for deep sympathy. For imaginatively displacing ourselves and then placing ourselves in the shoes of the other and then asking, how would I like to be treated in this situation? That's death and resurrection right there. What do the prophets and the law require of me with respect to my neighbor here? 
And we are not naturally inclined to this. Calvin has a marvelous statement on this. He says, where our own advantage is concerned, we can all go into detail, chapter and verse, on the extent of our rights. Right? How we want others to treat us, we are exquisitely good on that. Everyone, Calvin says, shows himself an exact scholar in equitable dealing when it suits himself. Right? We're all great at knowing how we like to be treated. And what Jesus is saying here, what the rule says, is let's apply that same sensitivity to others, to the other person. Don't be deceived by the simplicity of the rule. It's powerful and transformative. Speaking of the golden rule, Spurgeon says of it, he says, oh, that all men acted on it. Oh, that all men acted on it. Then there'd be no slavery, he says, no war, no striking, no lying, no robbing. All would be justice and love. What a kingdom is this which has such a law? It is the Christian code, he says. It's the condensation of all that's right and generous. He says, we adore the king out of whose mouth and heart such a law could flow. This one rule, he says, is proof of the divinity of our religion. Right? The golden rule by itself, especially situated in the Sermon on the Mount, is a sign of the God-given ethic that comes to us in Christ. Spurgeon continues. I want to quote him just a little more. He says, The universal practice of it by all who call themselves Christians would carry conviction to Jew, Turk, and infidel with greater speed and certainty than all the apologies and arguments which the wit and piety of men could produce. Right? You could take the whole apologetic enterprise of the church and throw it away if we could simply universally practice this. Right? You want to convince, what is it here, Jew, Turk, infidel, the whole world of the truthfulness of Christianity? It comes down to embodying the, the virtues of the Beatitude as condensed into the golden rule. Lord, teach it to me, he says. Write it on the fleshly tablets of my renewed heart and then write it out full in my life. So, what we are asking for and what we are seeking and what we are knocking for is the gift of God the Spirit to enable us to live by this rule. I mean, just, I mean, living by this rule would mean we would never be mean. Right? We would never be cruel. We would never be unkind. We would never be angry. We would never be impatient. We would never be insensitive. We would never be harsh. We would be demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit in love and joy and patience and meekness and kindness and gentleness and self-control in every encounter with every person. That's why I said the rule is simple. But don't be deceived about the simplicity. It's exquisitely demanding. When we ask our Father for his good gifts, and when we pray for the chief gift of the Spirit, 
we are asking for God to pour his love out on us, right? The Spirit is the love of God poured into our hearts, Romans 5. So we're asking for God the Spirit to flood us with the love of God that we might show that same love in kindness toward others. This is the heart of what prayer is about. The heart of prayer. You see this also in our our closing hymn, which has these words, Come with unction, come with power, on our souls your graces shower. Author of the new creation, Make our hearts your habitation. Right? It's a prayer to be filled up to all the fullness of God. Praise be to God, our Heavenly Father, who will give good gifts, all good gifts, in and through and with the Spirit to those who seek His kingdom above all things. Amen.